Will you open your Bibles to John chapter 12? <clears throat> John chapter 12, we'll look at verses 34 to 36 today. <clears throat> John 12:34. The other day, my daughter Trisha and I were discussing how God uses all of this scary changes in our lives to form us, to make us what he wants us to be, to prepare us according to his design. That got me thinking about how God has used changes and things that were really um, scary at the time to teach me lessons and to make me what he wants me to be. I think especially of my Air Force years where there were just so many things that I learned and so many ways that I grew. And the truth of this text this morning reminds me of a couple of things that I learned during those days. One is that uh, you never have everything you need. And you never know everything that you wish you knew, but somehow you still have to get the job done. Jesus says something kind of like that in our text today. And another lesson I learned uh, is you can't take forever to get around to important things. You have to act. You have to use what you've got and do something with it. Jesus, I think, communicates some of that kind of urgency, too, in this text today. So I'd say that though our text is quite simple and quite brief, and I don't think it's difficult to understand, it has some very practical lessons about what it means to live as God's people in the world. Well, let me read it, verses 34 to 36 of John 12. The crowd spoke up. <clears throat> Just to remind you here, we're talking, Jesus has been talking about going to the cross. He's been talking about what's going to happen on the cross and how he's going to be crucified. And the crowd is responding now. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. <clears throat> Two truths I want us to learn from this passage. The first is this. God doesn't answer all our questions. God doesn't answer all our questions. As I preached last week on the verses just prior to this, I was very con conscious of the fact that it was rather theological kind of heavy truth that we're getting into, though the passage was brief. Uh, we tried to unpack some of the, the volume of the meaning of those verses, and uh, always when we get into that, I see some lost looks, some eyes glazing over, and I realize that I'm not communicating very well and not understanding what it is I'm trying to say. Uh, I would ask for a show, well, maybe I better not ask for a show of hands. Uh, how many people felt like that's me. I didn't understand a word you were saying. Well, I just encourage you, you're not the only ones. Jesus said those words to this crowd, and they were so perplexed. They did not comprehend what on earth he was talking about. It's encouraging to know I'm not the only one that leaves people perplexed. The Lord Jesus did too. Well, let me explain their dilemma here. 
they knew from the scriptures, or they thought they knew from the scriptures, that when the Christ, that word means Messiah, the anointed one, when the Christ came, the Messiah came, that he would reign forever. Now that's what they had always been taught. They say that in verse 34 here. We have heard from the law, that's the scripture, kind of in a general term for the scripture, that the Christ, the Messiah, will remain forever. Well, that's right. In fact, if you look in your Bible, you'll find that's exactly what the Bible says. For example, back in 2 Samuel, when the Lord told David, made this covenant with David, this promise with David, that one of his descendants is going to be the one who would come, would be the promised king of kings. He says, I will establish, this is God speaking, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's also the promise that God made through Isaiah. Those verses we read every Christmas, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And what are the next verses? says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Well, they were right. The Bible says the Messiah is going to remain forever. In fact, in the, in the great prophecy in Daniel 7 where it talks about the Son of Man, remember that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He says, I'm the Son of Man. Well, this is where he got it, Daniel chapter 7. But what does it say about the Son of Man? It says that the Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And listen, Daniel 7, 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, that will never be destroyed. They were right. They understood this principle well. When the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, he is going to be here forever. He will reign forever. And now along comes Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be that son of man. And in fact, he does all kinds of things that make him look a lot like a Messiah. Just like Isaiah 61 said, you know, he, he, he causes the blind to see and he heals the sick and he raises up the lame. In fact, only a few days earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead and he said, I'm the son of man. The son of man comes and he does the works of the father and he speaks with authority like the father. And he seems to be the Christ, the Messiah. So what's their problem? Well, verse 34 again. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? For Jesus had just said, I'm going to be lifted up. They knew what that meant. That meant crucified. In fact, John says in the verse just before, he said that to show what kind of death he was going to die. Here, on, on one hand, the Bible says when Messiah comes... He'll live forever. And now you come claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, and it looks like you are, and yet you say you're going to die and be defeated and, and executed on a Roman cross. These 
things don't go together. These are contradictory. And so they said, what kind of, what, what kind of son of man, or who is this son of man, they say at the end of verse 34. We'd probably say, what kind of Messiah are you talking about, Jesus? These things don't jive. You can either have a Messiah who lives forever, or you can have a Messiah who dies, but you can't have both. Right? Clear enough? They were confused because the truths they knew about God's plan didn't fit. So what's Jesus' answer? I'd be curious to know. What's his answer? You felt a dilemma like that? How does Jesus answer those kind of dilemmas? Well, let's read on, verse 35. And then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Did I miss something? Is that an answer? No. Jesus doesn't answer their dilemma. In fact, if you read on down to the end of the chapter, he doesn't answer. In fact, if you read on to the end of the book, he never comes back and says, let me explain to you. I, I was busy at the time. Let me explain. No. Jesus never answers this dilemma that they have. That's the point I want you to hear here this morning. God doesn't answer all our questions. He just doesn't. Oh, don't misunderstand. I'm not meaning to say that there are no answers to our questions. In fact, this very question, this dilemma, this hopeless impossibility, this obvious contradiction that Jesus and the Bible are set against each other, they do not agree. That's what they thought. But from where we stand looking back, it was no big deal. Jesus said he was the Messiah. He was. He said he was going to the cross. He did. And three days later, God raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He was seated at the right hand of God and he didn't rule as a king in some piddly little... He reigns in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all of creation and every dominion and every power and every authority forever. Both truths were true. They just couldn't see it. All it took was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we see it and we say, how simple. Why didn't they see that? Because from where they stood, it only looked like contradictory truths going in opposite directions. And God didn't answer the apparent contradiction. From them it, for them, it seemed like it was foolishness. It seemed incomprehensible. It seemed irrational. It seemed like pure nonsense. Folks, God still doesn't answer all our questions. Don't you have a list of things that you think are contradictory about the faith? You don't have any things like that? I do. Don't think that because I'm a pastor I don't have a list. My list may be longer than yours. There's so many things that don't make sense. For example, if God is absolutely, totally sovereign and he determines the end from the beginning and he foreordains everything that comes to pass, how can he turn around and give us a choice and hold us accountable for the decisions we make? Those things contradict each other. They can't both be true, right? Bible teaches both. 
If God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, how can God be one, not divided? Or if he's one, how can he be three? Do you understand that? I don't. If Jesus is God, very God, made of the same substance as the Father, how can he be at the same time man, very man? Man is not God, God is not man. How can that be? If Jesus has determined that he will save whom he will save, and no one can even come to him unless he draws them himself, how in the world can he send us out calling people, come to me, Jesus says, and I'll save you? How can that be? Which way is it? Well, I have lots of questions. Sometimes the, thing, the things the Bible says seem impossible, seem incomprehensible, seem contradictory, seem irrational, seem like foolishness. That does not mean there are no answers. But it does mean God is not pleased to give us all the answers we want right now. Well, there are answers. He says, I know the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He talks about the vastness of his wisdom that no man can fathom. He even promises that someday when we see him, we'll know him as he knows us. And certainly when we look back on history and events like this, we say the great dilemma, the impossible contradiction was no big deal. God worked it out. It was really true. They just could not figure out how to bring it together. There's lots of reasons to believe that God has the answers, but he surely does not give them all to us today. I'm reminded of a couple of statements by wise old men of God that I've known or heard about. Last week I was talking to somebody in our own congregation who's walked with the Lord for a lot of years. He was telling me how dismayed he is when he hears people say, I don't understand God. I just can't follow a God I don't understand. He says, can you imagine a child coming up to his father and saying, Father, I don't understand you. And I'm not listening to you or doing what you say until I can understand you. There's been a short discussion in the home I grew up with, in the home I grew up in. But that's how we sound when we demand that we've got to have answers that only God has. That he probably knows we can't comprehend. I'm reminded of one of the professors at Covenant College that both of my kids had sort of Heard a lot about him. I've met him a few times. Dr. Henry Krabendam, he's a professor of, professor of biblical studies. A giant of a man. A heavy Dutch accent. When he gets into class and some student challenges, how could God be absolutely sovereign and still hold man accountable for his actions? Dr. K would reply, you may have heard Tricia say this, he would reply, if you try to fit God into your pea brain, your pea brain will explode. <laughs> the 
This morning I tell you, God has all the answers. But you can't hold them. He is infinite in all of his wisdom. wisdom. He is in unfathomable in all his ways. He is perfect in his omniscience. He knows everything. Because he made it that way. But he does not answer all our questions. So what are you going to do? I challenge you, let God be God. And you be a child before him. Well, that's not the end of our text, though. Jesus does not answer their questions, and God doesn't answer all of our questions. But that does not mean he's silent, for he goes on to speak directly to them and to us about our responsibility, just as your father would not shut up just because you said you didn't understand him. He would still have some things to say to you about what he expected. And that brings us to our second point, which is this. Walk in the light you have. Walk in the light you have. Have you noticed that there is a universal principle? We never have everything we need. We never know everything we need to know in order to do the task at hand. Don't you find that true? Every time you start a project, you get to a point where you say, oh, I need such and such a tool and I don't have one. Or, oh, I left those measurements in my, in, in my jacket pocket and I need those measurements. Or, oh, I forgot what so-and-so said. We never have everything we need and we never know everything we need to know in order to do anything. But in the midst of our inadequate knowledge and our inadequate tools, things still have to get done. In fact, when we know people, you probably know some people like this at where you work, that there's always a reason why they can't get the job done. They don't have the right tool, they're waiting for somebody to send them the right piece of information. There's always something missing. They can't ever get on with it. And we kind of think of those people as whiners, don't we? So in our text this morning, Jesus says, in effect, I know you don't understand everything. I know you don't have all the pieces that you wish you had. I know some of this sounds strange in your ears. I know some of it is beyond your comprehension, but right now there's something more important than all of that. There's something more important than your idle curiosity. I want you to walk in the light you have. Stop worrying about what you don't have. Walk in the light you have. I got that phrase from the Weymouth translation of the Bible. It was written in 1903. It's kind of an expanded translation, where almost a little commentary, where it tries to unpack uh, what the words really mean, what the phrases really mean. And, and there in verse 35, instead of saying walk in the light, Weymouth translation reads, live and act according to the light you have. Live and act according to the light you have. That's what I think this passage teaches. That's what Jesus is telling the crowd. So what is it to walk in the light? That's a crucial question then, if that's what Jesus wants of us. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, throughout the whole gospel, numerous times, Jesus talked about this image of the light. And when he does, almost without exception, he's talking about himself. He's the light. 
So for example, back in chapter one, we read, he is the true light that lights every man. Or in, in chapter eight, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in chapter nine, he says again, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when Jesus talks about walking in the light, he's talking about relationship with himself. That's what he's talking about. He's the light, we're to walk in that light. He's talking about relationship to himself. That explains verse 36, where he says, put your trust in the light. In other words, put your trust in me. You, that you may become sons of light. What Paul calls the children of the light. Jesus is calling them and us to abandon this position of doubters, of the cynic. Who says, well, if this is true, how can this be true? See, I'm waiting. God will have to give me an answer. He says, abandon that position. You don't have all the answers. You will never have all the answers in, the life, in this life. But you do have Jesus. He shows us the Father. He does the Father's mighty works. He accomplishes the Father's plan. He demonstrates the Father's love. He finishes the salvation that's ordained by the Father when he went to the cross. We do have Jesus. You see, we're not without knowledge. We're not without light. Do we have many questions that remain unanswered? So what? We have Jesus. Walk in the light you have. That means trust in Jesus. Believe what he says. Give allegiance to him. Go where he sends. Do what he says. In short, follow him. Those two positions still set before us today. The idle curiosity that wants to understand all about God and pit one theory against the, another theory. And the simple devotion that walks in the light. Sometimes we get into these great theological debates. We want to understand all these principles and we want to get them all in proper, in a proper perfect system all related to each other. Sometimes that gets absurd. Centuries ago they got into discussions about how many angels could stand on the head of a pen. What an absurd discussion. Ours are probably just as silly in God's eyes sometimes. The great apostle Paul, probably the, the best theologian ever. The one who understood the Old Testament and the one who, who struggled with it and, and tried to fit it all together. And yes, he was concerned about those things. But when he talks about what's driving his life, what does he say? I want to discover the ultimate perfect theological system that includes every conceivable truth in its proper order. He didn't say that. He talked about what was driving him, what the passion of his life was. He said, I want to know Jesus. That's why. I want to know the fellowship of even suffering with him. I want to be like him even as he died. I want to know Jesus. Everything else is all subsumed under this. I want to know Jesus. Walk in the light 
you have. And that light is nothing less than Jesus. Now this is not kind of a casual option that the Lord sets before us, or even maybe a shortcut. You don't have to do the hard work of, of, of thinking about hard issues, just kind of merely go on your way and walk with Jesus. Oh, that's not the issue here. There's an urgency about this. The urgency is that the darkness is overtaking us. There's not a lot of time to worry about every nitpicking little thing. The darkness is overtaking us. Walk in the light that you have. Several times this winter, we've heard on the news or read about search and rescue operations going on. Hikers are stranded up on a mountain. We think they may, there may have been an avalanche. They're covered with snow. Their lives are in danger. Or, or just recently, a, a boat goes down off of a... Vancouver Island and there are people lost at sea and, and, and 70 foot waves and, and their lives are in danger and cold water that you can't survive in very long. As I watch things like that, there's life-threatening situations in the extremes of winter. Some of the most terrible words that you ever hear are these. The search has been called off because of darkness. There may not be another day. There may not be tomorrow for those people. Darkness means death when you're in, a, in that kind of a dire circumstance. And every searcher knows the urgency of the shadows getting longer and the darkness overtaking them. Can't wait around till we have the perfect everything. Seize the moment. It's getting dark. And that's how Jesus addresses this crowd. As they worry about questions that they don't understand, he says, wait a minute, the darkness is coming. <clears throat> the darkness of his crucifixion, the darkness of sin and betrayal by his disciples and desertion, the darkness of the jeering crowds, the darkness of brutal soldiers, the darkness of mocking, the mockery of injustice. The darkness is approaching when there will be no time to talk to Jesus. They will no longer see him. They will no longer hear him. The darkness is coming when he will die. Indeed, this very text is Jesus' last public ministry to the crowd. They won't hear him again like this. They don't have forever. He calls them, come, put your trust in me. Give allegiance to me. Do it quickly before it's too late. The darkness is coming. It's about to overwhelm us here. Things are going to get worse than you ever dreamed. And he makes the same call to us. Darkness is coming. There's an urgency about walking in the light. I think that could mean a couple of things. There's a moral darkness coming. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like the, the darkness in our land, the spiritual moral darkness is just increasing at lightning rate. Even news commentators who perhaps help cause some of the problem are, are alarmed when you hear them. What's happening in our land? Robert Bork has a book out, I haven't read it, but Slouching Toward Gomorrah. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? Darkness. We'd be faithful to the Lord if to confess that you ran the risk of being beaten to death? I'm not sure. 
Only if you've been walking in the light, you see. Be ready. The darkness comes. And, 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 and darkness in the sense of judgment. In the face of the guilt of a society that has known better and, and, and has defied God increasingly, is, is judgment far off? Can we assume that judgment won't be for thousands of years? I don't think we can assume that there is eternal darkness. Jesus, returned, uh, Jesus refers other places to the condemnation, to the damnation, as, as outer darkness. Now is the time to buy up the opportunity to come to Jesus and to begin to walk in the light that you have. You don't know everything. Walk in the light you have. Bruce Millens in his book on John kind of summarizes this whole passage. Let me just read it. Maybe it'll help us put it in perspective. Jesus confronts them for the last time with his claims and invitation. He is the light who has come into the world. He is still with them. If they will but put their trust in him, they will themselves become sons of light. But the time of opportunity is almost at an end just a little while longer. And the alternative is solemn indeed. If they will not come to the light, he tells them darkness will overtake them and they will not know where they are going. The implications of turning away from the light of God are extremely terrible. I don't know how much you know this morning. I know some of you know your Bibles backward and forward have since you were a child. Others of you may only know what you've heard this morning. Probably most of us are somewhere in between. Either way, whatever you know, it's time to start walking in the light you have. To start trusting Jesus, shunning the darkness, following real close. Enough of hypothetical questions. Enough of the role of the doubter. Enough of the role of the cynic. It sounds so wise. It sounds so sophisticated to be the cynic. Well, this sounds like it contradicts this. How can you answer that? I can't answer everything. God doesn't answer everything. But he's given us light and he holds us accountable to walk in it. And that light is in the person of Jesus. How do you follow him? Do you ever follow someone through the woods in the middle of the night? Fallen branches and briars and holes. He's got the only flashlight and you're following behind. How do you follow? Kind of leisurely. Coming along 100 yards back? I don't think so. Step by step, branch by branch, put your feet where his feet were because he's got the light and you know if you get away from the light you are indeed lost. The darkness overwhelms you. And that's what Jesus calls us to. He's the light. He's the only light. Walk in it. God doesn't answer all of our questions. You'll never know all you wish you knew. You'll never understand everything. You're not God. But Jesus the light has appeared. He's confronted the darkness on the cross. 
And now he divides humanity into those who will follow him and become sons of light and those who love the darkness of their evil deeds and just want to shut out his light. It's no longer a matter of idle curiosity. It's a matter of urgency. We will do one or the other. We will follow the light, realizing that we dare not get far away because the darkness is overwhelming. Or we reject the light and are overcome by the darkness. He calls you plainly. Walk in the light. Walk in the light you have. Walk in the light you have while there's time. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your truth. And we confess that we, especially, I think, in our culture, where we're so used to having, to demanding answers for things. Lord, it's hard for us to be like little children before you. It's hard for us to just let you be God and and to admit that we don't have all the answers. And there's something about not having all the answers that somehow seems to excuse us, that we can just sit back and wait, and we have no responsibility until you, until you come with the answers that we demand. And so I thank you, Lord, even for the way that you left these people in their dilemma, though we see that there clearly was an easy answer what you were going to do. But I thank you for that, for it teaches us, Lord, that whether you answer us is not the issue. The issue is the light has come, and we must walk in it. Jesus has come, and we must trust him, walk with you. Give us grace to do that, Lord. For apart from your grace, we would go hide in the darkness and enjoy our wicked ways. Thank you that you call us to yourself and that you enable us to come. In Jesus' name we pray.